Well, good morning, everybody. Our uh, sincere condolences to all the Cubbies fans everywhere. But after all, you've waited 107 years. What's another year? Doesn't matter. They'll come back. I think, uh, I mean, I don't want to stretch this or, or be irreverent, but I think you just, you just beheld a miracle. An Ole Miss fan humbled himself and had his mouth shut. That's, Fred, that's just that's spectacular. Spectacular. We just, we just want to memorialize this moment. Let's just take a moment of silence so we'll never forget. So, the, uh, <laughs> the, greatest, the greatest miracle of all, though, is not Ole Miss fans being quiet after the University of Memphis beats them, but when we're quiet before the Lord, stop making all of our excuses. Stop uh, making all of our self-justifications. That, that's the real miracle. That's a miracle. And uh, I want us to see how that happens. It's in our text today. And uh, I want to thank uh, Dan and Barton and Todd for the good job they've done in taking us through this section of Romans. You know, we started off in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 with a major theme that uh, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation uh, for all who believe, uh, for the Jew first, second, for the Gentile. Then Paul launches into this long disquisition about human sin and frailty and rebellion, and it just goes, as has been mentioned by our other teachers, it just seems to go on and on and on, all the way from chapter 1, verse 18, up through the end of our text for today, chapter 3, verse 20. Why in the world does Paul not only spend so much time on this topic, but why does he start there? This is the beginning of his presentation. He gives us his major theme, and then when he starts unpacking all this, he starts with the bad news, and he spends all kinds of time on it. Well, there are two reasons why he takes all this time to talk about human sin and rebellion and all of its ugliness. Number one is this, that you really cannot understand what Christ is all about, and you can't understand the meaning of the gospel without coming to grips with the entail of sin. What, what has happened to us? as a result of the fall of Adam and Eve. What's the, the full description of it? Give it to us in vivid description. Let us understand the details of it. Because when you do, then you understand the details of the gospel and what's, what it's accomplishing. So we cannot come to an appreciation of the gospel, and we cannot live as men in light of the gospel until we have a proper diagnosis of what was wrong with us. We don't know exactly what God's done for us until we know what was wrong with us. Why did God, uh, why was it necessary for him to send his son in the first place? Why was it necessary for him to pour out himself in the Holy Spirit upon us and dwell in our hearts? Why was all this necessary? We're not going to understand it unless we carefully diagnose the problem. Those of you who are physicians, you know this. You cannot provide the right remedy and you won't even understand what the remedy is unless you have diagnosed properly. You know what you're dealing with. So Paul starts there. And we'll see how important that is in our own experience of the grace of God and in our communication of it to other people. So it's first and it's long because it is vitally important to an understanding of the gospel. Romans beautifully lays out the details of the gospel. 
but you've got to start here and you've got to put most of your emphasis here. You'll remember maybe that uh, uh, Francis Schaeffer, 40 years ago, was asked, you know, if you had an hour on a train in Europe with an unbeliever, how would you share the gospel? And he said, I'd take the first 50 minutes to talk about sin. 50 minutes out of 60. Because once you get that right and you understand what the problem is, now the solution of the gospel fits right in, makes perfect sense, and you understand the gospel. So we've got to spend the time here in order to grasp the whole idea of Christian salvation. The second reason for the length of it is this. It's hard to convince a man that he is guilty, he is completely corrupt in everything that he does, and that furthermore he was born this way, and furthermore he deserves it. Now that takes a while to convince a man of that. So Paul is starting here, and he's spending time here because he knows the resistance in his audience. Now remember, Paul's never been to Rome. So he's writing the Romans that he's, uh, he knows some people there because of their travels and his travels. They've met in other places. But Paul's never been to Rome. But he knows these people. Why? Because he knows people everywhere. The Bible describes every one of us, I can go to any church in this country, I can go to any church in the world, speaking through a translator, and I know exactly what I'm talking to. I'm talking to fallen human beings with those problems. That's what I'm talking to. And I don't have to know them personally. I don't have to spend a year there to get to know people to know what their deepest need is. And they've got religions all over the world, different kinds of religions. They're addressing different things. Only the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ addresses the real problem of humankind and focuses on it like a laser beam. So regardless of what their other religions are telling them they need to know or the problems they need to solve, I know because the Bible tells me the real problem, the real need that needs to be addressed in every situation with human beings. Now, I might get there a little differently depending upon the culture. And just like you can see Paul in Athens, he's, gonna, he's addressing philosophers. He starts out with common ground and, and moves toward this eventually, speaking of Christ as the judge of all the earth. But I know what the need is because it's here. That's, what, that's the reason Paul is spending so much time talking about this with people he doesn't know personally because he knows human beings and he knows what God has said about human beings. So we've got to start here. Now you'll remember uh, in Romans 1, 18 through 32, that first section, Paul was largely addressing the situation that's the easiest to diagnose because their sins are perhaps more obvious to human beings. And that was the pagan idolaters. So in the first case, he's, it applies to everybody, but he's largely speaking to the case of a Greco-Roman pagan worshiper involved in all the corruption, including sexual immorality that was quite rampant, even in the pagan temples. And he can clearly show, especially to a Jewish audience, how they are corrupt and how they are guilty. So he starts with the easy case, if you will, in Romans 1, 18-32. He then goes to the next most difficult case, which would be the religious moralist. And uh, Barton took us through that text of chapter 2, verses 1-16, through 16, where we see a person who's basically a religious person who has a sense of right and wrong, 
and who is making efforts to keep the right over the wrong, and who, because of his religious performance, have some sense of his own righteous performance. And Paul strips that one down and says, you know, the problem is, even if they don't know the law of God, they've got a law in their conscience. And whatever law they've got, they've broken it. And so they're accusing somebody else of being immoral when they at the same time are immoral themselves in a number of ways. They're hypocritical. So Paul takes care of the religious moralist in that middle section. Now he comes to the most difficult case. Toward the end now of chapter 2, from verse 17 all the way up, I'm sorry, yeah, from 2.17 all the way up to 3.8. Now he's going to deal with specifically the religious observant Jew. This is the most difficult case in the mind of the Jew, you understand. So everybody else may be screwed up, everybody else may be corrupt, but we, we're God's people. We keep the Sabbath, we're circumcised, we keep the, you know, the, the traditions of the fathers. We've been given the promises and the covenants and so on. We have the patriarchs. We're children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Paul tackles that one. And you've seen his logic there. That if you have the law, the law of God, like you Jews do, then you're obligated to keep it. But the very law that you have, you've broken it. And real circumcision is not physical circumcision. It's circumcision of the heart. And if you're circumcised, then you better obey the law. But you haven't. You've broken the very law that you hold as your tradition. You've broken it. So he takes the most difficult case. Now he shows, as you saw last week, that the Jews and church people do have their advantages. I mean, if you've been baptized into a church, even if you attended a liberal church, you have some advantages. You have the general story of the Bible. You have the general sense of who God is as a Trinitarian being. You've got some advantages. But that doesn't mean you're saved. And Paul makes that really clear. Now he's coming in our text today to the summary of this whole matter. And he's talked virtually about every case you can think of. The non-Jewish pagan worshiper, the pagan and the Jew who's trying to be religious and ethical. And there were many high-minded ethical people. Uh, Aristotle historically would have been one of them. Uh, certainly Plato was that way. Socrates, they were high-minded people. And many of their descendants in the Greco-Roman world were serious-minded ethicists. Paul addresses that case, and then he addresses the Jewish case. So now he's covered the entire world. And he's ready now to summarize. And in this summary, we get down to the depth of the issue that helps us understand the gospel. Now, next week, we launch into the specifics about the very heart of the gospel. I suppose if we were to pick one Thursday, when we all want to be here, it'd be next Thursday, because we're going to talk about the very way in which the gospel works at its very heart. Paul's getting ready to launch into that, but before he does, he cinches what he's been saying about the diagnosis of fallen humankind. So let's take a look at it now, picking up with chapter 3, verse 9, reading through verse 20. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. 
Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Okay, let's back up and look at verse 9, and really verses 9 through 18, a larger part of this, including all these citations from the Old Testament. And we see here that we are all under sin. We are all under sin. Now, what does it mean to be under sin? Well, there are several things that are implied. We'll get to the bullseye, but let's look at several aspects of what it means to be under sin. Maybe the best way to do this is take the Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 6 that describes the fall of man, of sin, and of the punishment thereof. And look at uh, paragraph 2, that last phrase, we're wholly defiled in all parts and faculties of soul and body. All parts of your soul, all parts of your body. Everything completely defiled. So the fall means not just part of you has fallen. There's not a part of you that's still open to the gospel by natural reasoning. You have your natural reasoning, but it's all defiled. You've taken your natural gifts and now you've turned that ship around 180 degrees and you're taking all the good gifts that God gives you and you're using them to rebel against Him. So you're completely perverted in every aspect of your being. That's the first thing. And then look at paragraph 4. We are uh, utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good and wholly inclined to all evil. Wow. Now, it's not saying there, the confession of faith doesn't say you're as wicked as you can possibly be. He's not saying that you're a Hitler and a Stalin. He's just saying that in every part of your being, you are inclined now to evil. Every part of you. And you are disabled. You are indisposed. Why are you disabled? Why are you unable to pursue good? Because you don't want to. You're indisposed to good. Your will is attached to your heart, your disposition. And your disposition is now evil, and therefore your will is bound to an evil disposition. So if you ask me, you mean to say that we have no control? We can't, we can't do good at all? We don't have free will? No, you've got the ability to make choices, but those choices are in view of your own motives, and your motives are consistently rotten. So you are, in that sense, not free to do good because you don't want to. Your disposition is fallen, so you're, you're disabled. Now, when Paul describes this phenomenon in other places, like Ephesians 2, he doesn't say you're sick in trespasses and sins. 
He doesn't even say you're a terminal case. He says you're already dead. He says you're dead in your trespasses and sins. I don't know when the last time you saw a corpse was, but I happen to see them quite frequently. Now, I've never done this. But if you were to take a pen and go over and punch one and see what happens, let me tell you what will happen. Nothing. You get no response out of a corpse. Nothing. The corpse is completely indisposed to do anything good. And that's what you are. Morally. Paul says you're dead in your trespasses and sins. So don't leave some island of righteousness or some island of self-direction or some island of moral ability in your mind. If you do, you're missing what it means to be under sin. You're corrupt all the way through so that you're defiled and you're also disabled. Now, look in paragraph 4. I'm sorry, we just looked at that, didn't we? Uh, look at paragraph 6. Here's the heart of it. It brings guilt upon the sinner. All of our transgressions. The original sin, you'll see he talks earlier about original sin from Adam. It's imputed to us. We're his children, so we inherit our, his sin and Adam, Adam and Eve's sin that's inherited to us. And then we perform all of our sins out of that evil nature that we inherited. And so all of that brings guilt upon us. And the real problem is guilt upon the sinner, whereby, this is the latter part of paragraph 6, he is bound over to the wrath of God and curse of the law and so made subject to death with all miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal. Now you can go tell your workmates today how inspiring your Bible study was today. I was told that I'm defiled, I'm disabled, that I'm guilty and under a curse. Yippee! Well, yippee, because when you understand your natural condition, yippee, because you see what Jesus has done for us. He's handled all this. And until you know that you're actually guilty for the original sin of Adam and Eve and guilty for your own sin that emanates from it, you're not going to understand the way the gospel works. So, here is a description of what it means to be under sin. The root of it, the, the bullseye is that we're guilty for what we did and therefore we're under the wrath of God. Now, men will figure out ways to, not, to deny this in a number of ways or anesthetize it or do all kinds of things to get away from it. But it's always there. It's just right under our skin. I remember one time uh, I was... Uh, preaching in Greenville, South Carolina. This is about 30 years ago. And uh, it was a Christmas thing that the church was having there. And I was the guest speaker. And afterwards, uh, a young little girl, college girl, comes up to me. She says, she says Pastor, uh, you live in Elizabethan? Which I did at the time. I said, yes, I live in Elizabethan, Tennessee. And she said, well, my aunt lives there. Her name is, is Mary Smith. So uh, I said, well, would you like for me to tell Mary Smith Hello. She said, I will. I said, well, I don't know her, but I said, uh, what church does she go to? And she said, oh, she goes to Calvary Baptist Church. I said, oh, I, I know uh, the pastor there, and I'll be glad to call your aunt and tell her hello. So in our little phone book in Elizabeth, it was about, you know, that thick. There was only one Mary Smith. Can you believe it? So <clears throat> I called Mary Smith, and uh, I said, Mary? She said, yes. I said, this is Sandy Wilson. Sandy Wilson? I said, yes. Yeah. She said, 
You're calling about the pine cones, aren't you? I said, pine cones? And she said, oh, you're not calling about the pine cones. Now I'm really embarrassed, and I've got to tell you about the pine cones. She said, the other day I was having a luncheon in my house, and I had an arrangement in the middle of the table, and I had everything all set except I needed a couple of pine cones. And on the way back to my house, I was driving in front of your church, and I saw your beautiful pine trees there. And I, So I parked over across the street at the funeral home and <laughs> tiptoed across the street, and, and I got some pine cones. And while I was getting the pine cones, I was sure that you were looking at me out the window. And so when you called, I just assumed you are calling about the pine cones. I said... Uh, Mary, uh, I'm calling because your niece, Betsy in Greenville. Oh, yes, yes. She just wanted to tell you hello and that she loves you. <laughs> oh, Pastor, thank you. And I said, Mary, furthermore, anytime you want any pine cones, you just come on over, honey, and get as many as you want. <laughs> Guys, you've got some pine cone stories, and I know it. Yeah, I love to tell the story about Arthur Conan Doyle, you know, the great... Uh, Sherlock Holmes author, who also is a great practical joker, and one time he sent an identical uh, telegram in London to 12 of his friends, and he just simply said this, all is discovered, flee immediately. <laughs> That's a terrible joke. Don't, don't any of you do that to me. Within 24 hours, all 12 friends had fled England. Literally, just below your skin, you, I, whether you defend yourself or not, whether you're claiming to b agree with this or not, you're confirming it by that guilt conscience that you still have. Every one of us is just underneath the skin. And as the gospel deals with us through the years, we get better and better at really allowing ourselves to be forgiven and receiving the grace of God. But we struggle with this all the time. You know, uh, the great psychiatrist, his name will pop back into my head in a moment, uh, out in Kansas, somebody help me, oh, the, the manager, Carl Menninger. Carl Menninger said that in his hospital, <clears throat> he could empty 70% of, of the inpatient hospital beds if he could convince them of one thing, your sins are forgiven. We have no idea how many of our psychological disorders and disabilities are driven by a guilt conscience that has not been brought under the reign of grace. So we've got to deal with this. You've got to face it head on. That's the reason Paul's hammering it. And especially, if he thought he had an old male audience, he'd probably double the length of this description. Because men seem to be more defensive about their faults than even the female population does. So let's take this to heart. Let the diagnosis run through you and shine the light on you. So this is what it means to be under sin. Now notice, Paul then launches into citation of Old Testament Scriptures. Now why does he do that? Well, because he's still working on his most difficult case. That would be people who go to church people who think they've got some claim to religious righteousness. And so he's quoting the Bible because that's what they say they believe. So he just, he takes a, a verse out of Ecclesiastes. He takes most of his verses out of Psalms, Psalm 14 in particular at the beginning here, Psalm 53. And then he, and he quotes 
uh, other, uh, Isaiah 59, 7 and 8. So he's quoting things that to them are authoritative scriptures. Now, uh, in the Psalm case, it's interesting. The verses apply to the unbeliever. David's Psalm 14, he's talking about the unbelievers. Paul applies it to, to the Jews. And he says, you, you covenant people who, who can describe quite rightly what's going on, all the wickedness in Washington, all the wickedness in Las Vegas, all the wickedness here, there, and the other place. And Paul says, you, you need to shine that light on yourself. But then in, in Isaiah 59, of course, there Isaiah is talking about Israel and about how they have abandoned uh, the commandments of God. So Paul's citing the Old Testament. Now he does it in a very logical fashion. He doesn't just randomly quote verses. These are in a very specific order. Look uh, to begin with at verses 10 through 12. And here we learn that we are all under sin. That is, it is universally true. We are under sin universally. Look at these words. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. How many times do you get all or no one? I mean, I count at least seven there. Over and over again, these three verses. No one, not one, all. You get the point. He's saying that we are universally under sin. Now, we all do understand that Hitler and Stalin and Osama bin Laden... They are perfectly wicked all the way through. You can see everything in their whole life is wicked. You can see the evil motivations in everything that they do. And it's really clear. But the problem is, what about Gandhi? What about Albert Einstein? What about the Dalai Lama? I mean, there are some people in this world who are really living upright lives. You go, well, I'm not so sure now about those folks. Well, Paul says, I want you to be sure. I want you to see that with the life of Gandhi, with the life of Albert Einstein, the life of the Dalai Lama, they've got the same problem. No, not one. You think Billy Graham or the Pope or somebody else. There must be a righteous man somewhere. Paul says, no, not one. Nowhere is there to be found a righteous man on his own merits. Righteousness just simply means to live a life in accord with the will of God, in accord with His law. And that, of course, involves your actions, your words, your attitudes, your heart, your disposition. So from the inside out, in all of your deeds, to be righteous, to be living a life in accord with God's law. And Paul says nobody is in that condition. Nobody is exempt from this diagnosis. Not one. Now, this has tremendous implications in the way that you view everything, especially evangelism. We'll come back to that. But you've got to realize it doesn't matter how philanthropic a person is. It doesn't matter how many people they sent off to college. It doesn't matter how many buildings have been built because they've given gifts. It doesn't matter how nice they are. No one is righteous before God. Everyone is under sin. That's the big point he's making. So if it includes Billy Graham, can I assure you of something? It includes you. Uh, so 
And Billy Graham quite well knows this. He, he's, he, he makes it very, very clear. If God were to take his hand from him, his lips would turn to dust. He knows that he's a sinner in desperate need of the forgiveness of handling the problem of his guilt. Billy Graham has a guilt conscience and a guilt complex, if you will, that has to be dealt with. Why does he have the complex? Because he's really guilty. He has really sinned against God. And he is in deep trouble apart from the gospel. So this is what Paul's saying. First of all, it's we're universally under sin. Now notice secondly, verses 13 through 17, follow his logic. We're pervasively under sin. So it's not just every individual, but it's every part of every individual. It's pervasively through every individual. So every part of every individual. And he goes through here. Notice these are in logical sequence. He starts with speech. Pervasively in our speech, their throat. He mentions the throat, the tongues, the lips, and the mouth in verses 13 and 14. He's saying that you can, you can tell from their tongues. And of course, James reminds us how wicked is the tongue. He says, a huge ship is steered by a little rudder. And so your life is steered by your tongue. And he says, with the very tongue with which we praise the Lord, we curse men. How wicked is the tongue? How much damage does the tongue do? We all know this in our own lives. That's because you have a sin problem. And you are guilty for the use of your tongue from the time of your birth until today. You're guilty. You're accountable for all of that. And we know it's wicked. Secondly, your conduct. Look at verses 15 and 16. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And of course, this quotes Isaiah 59, 7 and 8. And he's talking about the Israelites. You people who've been brought up to know God. You've been taught the Bible. You've been taken to worship. You, even your parents or grandparents were believers. You've received the sign of circumcision. You've been included, or nowadays it'd be baptism. You've been brought into the church. Now just look at you. With your feet, you, 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 you walk into evil and you shed blood. And just look around and see the violence around us. And Jesus taught us very clearly that if we hate a man in our heart, we've committed the sin of murder. So how many times have you wished somebody were dead? Did you wish they weren't here on the face of the earth? You just killed him morally in your heart. So we are all guilty of these things in speech, in conduct. And then look at verse 3. This is continuing Isaiah 59, but it speaks of relationships and the way of peace they have not known. We've just, everywhere we've gone, we've sown discord and lack of peace. Why? Because we've been selfish and corrupt and wicked in our desires. We've taken advantage of people instead of seeking their welfare. You say, well, P Pastor, you're just... You're being hard on me. I, I really do care for people. Oh, I understand this. If you're a believer, yeah, you're, you're, you're doing some good things now. And you're doing it for the right motives. But if you check back in the confession of faith, it makes the true statement, I think, that you still have indwelling sin. Your motives are mixed. And it's the struggle of the Christian life. Because even now that you're regenerate, you're born again, you have a new direction in your life, you have a new heart, you're still... You have mixed motives. You still struggle with your guilt complex. You still struggle with your selfishness. You still struggle with your corruption. The reason is you by nature are not righteous on your own. You cannot stand on your own two feet morally. You cannot say, I'll stand on my record. If you stand on your record, you're toast. So nobody can stand on their record, their pre-Christian record or their existing Christian record. 
because we do not even know the way of peace. I was amazed this just this week. Uh, Governor Moonbeam Brown in California. Maybe, uh, you know, that's what you used to call him, Moonbeam. That, that shows my age, but that was about 40 years ago. Moonbeam, you know, he was into all kinds of weird stuff. And so, he's the governor. And uh, so he, he makes a declaration this week that all of these crisis pregnancy centers that are pro-life, now by his gubernatorial mandate, must have directions to the nearest abortion clinic so that women know all their options. Now, where in the hell does that come from? Uh, and that's just what I mean. It comes from hell. Uh, who would think of such a law? Who would think of such, somebody who's got a corrupt mind, who's trying to either please, you know, one set of the Democratic Party or just who is so corrupt that he wants these people who in their conscience cannot kill a child and who are trying to provide life for these little ones. And he wants them to advertise the death clinics. I mean, I'm sure they're going to have issues of conscience. He says the first penalty will be $500 and it'll go up from there. Well, of course, this is being appealed in court. I trust, I mean, sometimes the Court of Appeals out there on the West Coast, you wonder if, what planet they've come from, but maybe even they can figure this one out. But you have people who don't know the way of peace, just constantly causing war. If you want to know what the biggest problem in your marriage is, can I tell you? You. Uh, and it always is. You know, you don't know the way of peace. And this description fits us. We are just intensely selfish. Even after you become a Christian and devoted your life to Christ, even if you're a missionary, you find yourself intensely selfish over and over again. I mean, I find that in my own life as a, as a pastor in a church. I just find, you know, I just go through the day and I realize I've just organized everything today for my convenience. It's amazing. It doesn't take... You don't have to be intentional about this. You just do it by nature. It's your default position. Everything you do is going to be ordered for your comfort and convenience. It's an amazing phenomenon. He says, the way of peace they have not known, and you and I don't. We're desperately wicked by nature. Now, the big verse comes in 18, because here he's saying we're under sin radically. That means there is a fundamental, profound problem that's driving everything. And here it is. There is no fear of God before their eyes. It's the lack of the fear of God. And this, this describes natural human beings better than anything else. Paul, you know, David says in his Psalms, I've set the Lord before my face. So the godly man is setting God before his eyes. He's looking into God. He's thinking about God. He's got God's agenda on his mind. That's the godly man. The natural person, you and me, apart from Jesus Christ, our natural default position is to dismiss God, to act as though there be no God, and therefore we would not fear God. Now, the word fear can also be translated reverence. So it's not a fear like, oh, I'm afraid God's going to destroy me. It's not that kind of anxiety, although if you're an unbeliever, that would be a reasonable reaction. But if you're a believer, you're not worried, but you still fear God. I mean, R.C. Sproul says it well. If you don't fear God, you're crazy uh, because he is fearsome. So if you don't fear him, you don't know him because if you know him, you know he is awesome. He is powerful. And so we worship him in reverence and awe, says the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12. That's the way that we deal with him. It's constantly in reverence 
and all. That's the reason that our language is carefully constructed. That's the reason that our conduct is carefully constructed because we're living in Coram Deo, in the presence of God, and we fear Him, we reverence Him. Now, He also happens to be our Father. So our Father is on the throne, and our Father is awesome. And the last thing we want to do as sons is to denigrate our Father. He's the King, and He's also our Father. We want the entire cosmos to honor and worship Him. He's our dad, but he is the king. And we want the entire world to worship him. And the problem with the unbeliever is they have no fear of God. They've erased him from their minds. They've acted as though there is no God. And there's no reverence at all about him at all. And now you look at the new atheists. They're not just like the quiet atheists of years past. No, now they're aggressive atheists who are, who are pouring out venom against all those who believe in, in the God of the Bible. It's amazing now. In social media, it's amazing how many uh, jokes are being made about Christians, how much scorn has been thrown upon the church now. It's just incredible. It's a, it's a tidal wave. These are the folks who are now in our culture unleashed to express the natural condition of human beings. They're representing us well. So rather than getting mad or resentful, why don't you just say, yep, looks just like me. Apart from Jesus Christ, that's what I'd like to hear. That's what would entertain me. That's what would humor me if I didn't know Him and have reverence and awe for Him. And Paul is saying, here's the fundamental problem. There is no fear of God uh, they, before their eyes. Now, Solomon says it clearly. Others say it clearly. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, he said, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. You know, all your learning, all your relationships, all your money, all your experiences, vanity, vanity. Why? Because it's all going to be over and you're going to die. So Solomon gets to the end of that very encouraging book and he says, here's the end of the matter. Fear God and keep His commandments because God is going to bring everything under judgment. So just focus on this. Fear God. Love Him. Reverence Him. And out of that reverence and love, now take His will for your life and live it out. That's what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes chapter 12. So here you get the problem. We're all under sin universally, pervasively, radically. At the very heart of our being, we do not love God and wish He didn't exist. That's the natural condition of human beings as Paul describes it. Now, Let's move to the second issue that Paul addresses in verses 19 and 20. Not only are we all under sin, we are all held accountable. He brings his opening argument now to a conclusion to set us up to understand why we so desperately need the gospel of chapter 3, verses 21 following. We need it desperately because we're all under sin and we're all held accountable for it. Now, first of all, notice in 19a, we have the law of God. We're held accountable because we do have the law. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So, the law, Paul is saying, once again, especially to the Jewish audience here, whatever the law says, it's saying it to you. Because you're the ones who have come under the law. 
You're the people of God. So we could say to all of us who are members of the church, whatever the Bible says, it says it to you. Because the Bible is written to God's people. I mean, just check out Paul's epistles. They're written to churches. So he's writing to God's people. So don't take the Bible and say, you wicked people out there, you know what my Bible says about you? No, the Bible's talking about you. And so Paul is saying, we all, we all have the law of God. Now, you might ask the question, well, what about those <clears throat> of my friends who've never read the Bible, who, don't, who couldn't even give you one of the Ten Commandments? Well, maybe the one on adultery they could give you uh, because they're more familiar with breaking that one maybe, but, but they couldn't give you any of the Ten Commandments. Or maybe what about the person in the, the middle of an un undeveloped uh, country who's never heard of Jesus Christ and never seen the Bible? Well, go back to Paul's argument in the early part of Romans 2. They have a law of conscience. There is a law. There's a natural law. When you're made in the image of God, you're made with some intuitive sense. It's not perfect as fallen human beings. But there is a, an imperfect general understanding of right and wrong. So even with the person in the middle of nowhere who's never heard of the Bible, if he takes someone's life without cause, there's a sense of knowing that was wrong. Almost universally. There may be a couple of exceptions. And where there are exceptions, there are other things that they know that are truly right or wrong. So when anthropologists have studied any culture, there's always a right and wrong. Something's right and something's wrong in every culture on the planet for all ages. And Paul, Paul makes that argument then. You remember in chapter 2 he says, so they have the law, whatever law they have, they've broken it. So whatever they've imperfectly intuited because they were made in God's image and have something of his likeness still shining forth in their being, they had some sense of right and wrong, and they've broken it. So whatever law they had was for them, and they broke it. They had the law. They had the law of their own conscience. Now, we're in deeper weeds, frankly, because most of us, our mamas taught us the Bible. A lot of us here, our mamas and daddies taught us the Bible. So we've had the law of God, the infallible, the perfect law of God. And we're held accountable because we had it. We can't say we didn't know better. Now, notice in 19b, let's take the next phrase, we have no excuses. He says, so that every mouth may be stopped. No excuses. And we're experts at giving excuses. Do you remember, some of you are old enough to remember, was in 1978, you remember the mayor of San Francisco was murdered? by a police officer? Is it Dan White or something like that? And you remember the police officer's defense for murdering the mayor and a city supervisor? Yes, Twinkies. Uh, he said, well, I get depressed, you know, and you can tell I get depressed because I eat Twinkies. And it was known as the Twinkies defense. So, and he, he didn't get, he didn't get a, a capital uh, conviction he got, I think, uh, voluntary manslaughter. But he was defending himself based on Twinkies. And so, look, if that guy can literally go to court and stand before a man in a black robe and a jury and say, it's the Twinkies, <laughs> then I don't put anything past you. I mean, and any of us who have reared children, we've heard of them all. We've heard the most unbelievable excuses that one can imagine. And you made the same excuses when you were that age. 
And now at your age, you know what you do? Oh, man, you dress it up. It's very sophisticated. You've gotten really good at this. You've got the adult version of Twinkies. You're, you're really good at setting your excuses. And, and Paul says, do you think you can pull the wool over God's eyes? Really, gentlemen, please, give me a break. If God is God, do you think that he's impressed by your excuse making? No, I mean, it reminds me of when I went to court. Um, no, let's not talk about that. Um, <laughs> notice in 19C, thirdly, that we not only have the law of God and we have no excuses, but we have to face God. The writer of Hebrews says it's appointed to man once to die and after that to face the judgment. Gentlemen, do you realize every single human being is going to face his creator and his creator is his judge and he will be judged and the standard will be perfection because God is perfect and he made us perfectly in his image and we're accountable for that. We had some form of law, either the written word of God or the law of conscience we violated what we were given. And all that our excuses do is just add up to our sins. And we've got to face God. And it's a horrible thing to fa think of facing God without a covenant with Him. This is the big problem that the gospel has come to solve. Not our unhappiness. Not our bad behavior. The gospel didn't come primarily to clean us up and make us better people, although it does. The fundamental problem the gospel came to solve is the guilt that you bear before the judge of the universe. That's the big problem that's got to get solved. And there's no way to solve it within your own powers. Because we look to the next uh, phrase uh, in verse 20. We have no ability to earn God's approval. We have no ability to earn God's approval. So now you're guilty. You have no excuse. You're facing the God of the universe. And there's not one blessed thing you can do to dig yourself out of this hole. Your excuses, we've already seen, are worthless and just get you in more trouble because they're all lies. So now we're just adding to your guilt. So what are you going to do? You say, well, time out, Judge. Could I go back and have a little bit more time? Maybe I, knowing now what I know, now that I'm before your throne, I realize I'm stripped naked and I have no defense whatsoever. Maybe I could go back and do some good things that I, maybe instead of buying three houses that are a million dollars each, I can now give my money to the poor. Maybe I can evangelize more people than I was evangelizing. Maybe I can be kinder to my wife and care for my children better. Lord, give me a second chance. And look what Paul says. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. So no matter how much time you have, no matter how good intentions yours are, no matter what kind of new leaf you turn over, you can't possibly justify yourself before the eyes of a holy God. Your possibility and ability to do that was long gone in the Garden of Eden. You inherited a corrupt nature and you've lived it out perfectly. You've been a living, a perfect living illustration of what it means to be a son of Adam and Eve. And there's no way you can pay for that. 
These are infinitely inglorious acts because you've committed them against an infinitely eternal, unchangeable God whose judgments are perfect and right and holy. What hope do we have if we're just trying to earn our way out of this or be a better person, turn over a new leaf? You can do that with your wife. You can't do that with God. You've dug a hole so deeply that every effort you make to dig out of the hole, the hole just gets deeper. Because look what Paul says about the law. He says, what does the law do for us? The law cannot justify you. you. By keeping the law, you will never get there from here. Here's what the law does for you. It gives you a knowledge of your sin. If you want the law really to help you in the most important way, let that law lead you like a scalded dog to the foot of the cross of Calvary. And you come and say, Lord, I have no hope. I can see that what I've earned for myself is nothing but your condemnation forever and ever, and I rightly deserve it. And this law graciously scolds you and leads you over here to Calvary, knowing that you have no hope in yourself. You've got to get outside of yourself. You've got to find an alien righteousness apart from your own works. You need a perfect righteousness, and there's no way you could possibly construct that. You've already blown it. So you can't make it perfect. You've got to get a perfect righteousness from outside yourself. Paul says, quoting the Psalms, there is no one righteous. And yet we have to be righteous to appear before God. So where is this going to come from? We're going to see it's a righteousness outside of yourself. That's what leads us to Jesus Christ. And you don't know how much Jesus loves you. And you don't know how wise and gracious His ways are until you see how desperately you've come to the end of your rope. And there's nothing you can do for yourself. You can only trust in someone else who's done it for you. You've got to trust in Christ. And His righteousness is perfect, crystal clear. Not one nick in His armor. Not one imperfection in His being. And He gives you credit for all of that through simply trusting in Him. Now, so what? Let's take a few, word, a few moments to think about the so what's. What does all this mean to us? First of all, it suggests in us a humble gratitude. For those of us who are Christians, brothers, um, we just have to remember that those through history who have been the most grateful to God, who have been the most humble men, are those who know of their desperate need for a Savior. What does the name Savior mean? It means someone who rescues us. Rescues us from what? Just from unhappiness? Rescues us from an unfulfilled life? No. Fundamentally, rescues us from the wrath of God deserved because of our guilt. That's what makes Him Savior. He's rescuing us from that. And the most humble and the most grateful men are men who are aware of Romans 3, 8 through 20. They, they realize their bankruptcy, their inability and indisposition to do anything for themselves. They have to trust Jesus Christ. And then secondly, on the so what's, this makes our witness all the more urgent. Urgent witness. Woe be to any of us who think 
that there's someone among your circle of friends who is such a good man that surely God will grate on the curve and let him in even though he doesn't trust in Christ. Woe be to us for that. What we're, what we're betraying is our own misunderstanding of the fallenness of human nature. If you think there's some philanthropist out there or some good person or some person who's employed a thousand people and taking care of them, and somehow because of that, he has his ticket into heaven, you have not understood what Paul is saying. Our witness to everyone who doesn't know Christ is urgent. Now notice, Paul doesn't start his gospel with, hey, would you like to have a way to just add a little icing to your cake? Would you like to have a way to have some companionship with the deity? Would you like to have a way to be happier and more fulfilled in your life? He doesn't start there. The gospel presentation does not start there. Now it may take you a while to get here, but when the gospel presentation in its essence is being presented, it starts where Paul starts. Paul always starts here. Here's the fundamental problem that needs to get solved. And as Schaefer says, it may take you 50 minutes. We had an hour, and I took the first 45 minutes to talk about sin before I ever mentioned Jesus. And I suppose that as we're dealing with our friends, you know, if it takes us that long to deal with the text, it probably should take us that long to deal with this problem. People need to see that they need the Lord. We have an urgent need to witness that people may know the Lord. So, gentlemen, this is the big problem. And the law is the mouth-shutting power that helps us come before Him and give up on our self-salvation strategies. Give up on them. They're not going to work. You must let all those go. Trust only in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when we get to the lesson next week, we'll see what Jesus has specifically done to cure the heart of our problem. The lack of the fear of God the unrighteousness, the guilt. Jesus has taken care of that. And in order to know Him better, we need to know the details of what He's done for us. How did He solve this problem? And we'll see that He surely has. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we do thank You for being our Savior. And we confess anew this morning, we need a Savior. We cannot save ourselves. Even with a little help from the church. We cannot save ourselves. Even with a lot of help from the church, we cannot save ourselves. Only you can save us. And you've given the perfect provision in Jesus Christ. And we pray that our eyes again today may turn fully to Christ, trusting not in ourselves or in our good works or in anything else. For our mouths have been shut, but now trust only in a praiseworthy Jesus. Lord, help us now as we go our way to be humbly grateful men and to be men with an urgently important message on our hearts and in our mouths. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.